Welcome to Crosswords, the podcast about practical Christianity. What does it look like to walk in Jesus' footsteps? How do I live in a culture hostile to godliness? These are questions that we'll answer on each podcast as we get our heart and mind on Jesus. All scriptures quoted are from the New International Version. You can follow me on Twitter at Kingdom underscore Saint. Walk with the Lord today and be a blessing. Good afternoon, family. Good to see everyone back from Tennessee, all safe and sound. Thank be the Lord for that. Good to have you here this Sunday. What catches your eye? What are things that you keep an eye out for? Things you consider valuable, worthy of your time? For me, it might be relaxing with my wife maybe enjoying some live music, maybe playing some musical instruments, maybe going to a tech store, a high tech store, a good spiritual seminar like you guys who came back from Tennessee just experienced. And of course, time well spent in God's word. What does that have to do with the apple of your eye? That's a funny phrase. It's an idiomatic phrase that comes from Genesis, believe it or not. Think about what distracted Eve what got hold of her focus? What got her off track? Wasn't it the proverbial apple, right, from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? We know it wasn't really an apple, but that's where that expression came from, the apple of her eye. But the phrase nowadays is mostly used as a term of endearment as well. We may call our spouses the apple of our eye the most special person in our life, the apple of our eye, and of course, Jesus, our King, the apple of our eye. We're going to study two incidents this afternoon and then wrap around them a parable that emphasizes the importance of what we're actively seeking at any moment in time in our lives. There are just some things that if we're not paying close attention to, we're going to miss out on Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem, but first he has to go through Jericho. So as he comes near Jericho, a blind man was sitting and begging by the road. And when he heard the crowd go by, he tried to find out what was happening. The people told him that Jesus from Nazareth was passing by. So we're presented here with this blind man. In Mark chapter 10, verse 46, we know his name is Bartimaeus. So this is a man born blind, deprived of his sight. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but what, what would it be like for us not to be able to see? And it was a great handicap to have. He was reduced to begging by the side of the road because of that. Spiritual significance. Let's do a spiritual significance pause here at the moment. Oftentimes when we see incidents like this in our life where somebody has been physically deprived of their sight, we have to think of what the spiritual significance of that could be. Maybe our spiritual lack of sight often has us begging for scraps on the road of the world or even in the church because we can't see. And as it often happens, a person who is deprived of one sense has a heightened dependence on other senses. So Bartimaeus is focused on what he's hearing around him. He hears a commotion, 
a crowd of people going by. So like that woman on the porch in front of her house, he does a similar thing. He shouts, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the people at the front of the crowd told the blind man to be quiet. Shh, shut up, you know, don't get all this attention. But that made him shout even more. He shouts even louder, son of David, have mercy on me. He couldn't pass up this opportunity to meet up with Jesus. Apparently he had heard of Jesus and he knew what he could do. So here, his, here is his opportunity to meet up with Jesus. And I don't know if he himself knew the scriptures or he was taught the scriptures, but he used the term for the Messiah, son of David. So he was familiar with that terminology and confessed his belief that this Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. So Bartimaeus doesn't allow any of these other people, any of their attempts to ignore him or, or break him down or shush him. He doesn't let that intimidate him. But if anything, he gets even bolder by that and shouts even louder. He wants to break through that din of civility or propriety or cultural norms. He doesn't really care what people are telling him to do. He wants mercy from the Messiah. So Jesus stops and he orders them to bring the man to him. When the man came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said, Lord, I want to see again. Now, Jesus, of course, he knows what's going on. Nothing escapes Jesus' attention. Even if you're whispering his name or don't even know what to call him, he's right there ready to shower his mercy on you. Think about this. Why do we seek people? What's usually behind? What are the motives behind us trying to seek people with more authority than us? Like what would make us go visit a judge or go visit uh, some kind of higher office? Is it not because we need help? Is it not because we can't do something for ourselves and we need somebody with more authority to help us do it? Isn't it usually because we need a favor from someone? It's usually something selfish. It's usually something that we need that drives us to seek somebody with more authority. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. As parents, we don't blame our children for seeking us out for something that they need that asserts our authority over them. Not that we're trying to create a dependence, but if the scripture doesn't teach us that we ought to be codependent on people here, but if anything, it points out and it emphasizes our codependency on God, which is what our brother Mark also emphasized on his lesson today. Bartimaeus knew that only the Messiah would be able to give him what he needed, what he wanted. No one else could give that to him. And so it is his faith in the Messiah that will make him well, as Jesus says here. Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he could see again. He followed Jesus and praised God. And all the people saw this. And they too praised the Lord. So here we see Bartimaeus, a blind man. Blindness makes us dependent sometimes on others. We're missing out on a sense, on something physical in our lives that usually makes us dependent on other people. But we see here a story of how breaking that codependency and relying on the Messiah can lead us to freedom. So we see four aspects of faith that Bartimaeus shows that makes us well. He says, your faith has made you well. We see confession. 
Bart knew who Jesus was, and he was not afraid to call out on him, even if the crowd was trying to shush him. He wasn't afraid of confessing Jesus as the son of David, as the Messiah. We see persistence in his faith. In spite of being shushed, he persisted. He wasn't ready to give up or, or give in to the crowd around him. We see a dependence. He sought Jesus out. He wanted something from Jesus and wasn't afraid to go up to him and demand it, if anything, want, because he knew that only the Messiah could give it to him. So there was an awareness there on his part. And this is a very important step of faith, by the way, an awareness that only God can give us what we need, a dependence on God. And fourth but not last, he re his response is to join Jesus, to follow Jesus, and as it says here, to glorify God. Notice how the physical healings always happen immediately. Whenever we see a physical healing uh, done by Jesus, in the flashing of an eye, in the twinkling of an eye, it gets done. But sometimes, now, nowadays, in our generation, sometimes we fail to believe that maybe some kind of emotional healing doesn't happen as immediate as well. That for some reason, because it's something emotional, or because it's something in this day and age, it takes a slower time for it to happen. And I've always thought about that. And I think it because it has to do with those codependent behaviors. We're still too tied to needing something in this world for that full healing to happen. You know, we need those crutches still uh, in some way or another. And I believe that that's where evil wants to trap our faith to prevent it from going, from growing. Sin kind of conditions us to be emotionally dependent on things and crutches in this world. Bartimaeus here regains his sight. He follows Jesus. He praises God. His faith not only made him well, but it caused other people to praise God as well. So when we are made well, when we show that we have that dependence on Christ, and we may still be limping in some way or another, but we know we are well because we're leaning on the Messiah, that gives others cause to praise God as well. We can be a cause for that. Here's a man whose eyes didn't work. He couldn't see. But who did he make the apple of his eye despite being blind? Jesus Christ. Now Jesus is getting through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. He was passing through and we find another character, a man named Zacchaeus was there. He was director of tax collectors, and he was rich. He tried to see who Jesus was, but Zacchaeus was a small man. He couldn't see Jesus because of the crowd. So he runs ahead, climbed a fig tree to see Jesus, who was coming that way. Remember how we've talked in previous lessons, even on Wednesday class, how it is hard for the rich to get into heaven. But here we're going to see the case of a rich man who actually got into heaven. Well, actually, Jesus says, you are a son of Abraham and salvation has come to your house. And we're going to see a contrast between these two. He is seeking Jesus, first of all. Well, we could say that the young, rich young ruler also went to seek Jesus. But Zacchaeus, notice his spirit, notice his passion. He goes out of his way to see Jesus. He's not just satisfied with kind of being there in the crowd. He needs to see Jesus. He wants to make that contact with Jesus. So he runs ahead. He climbs a, a tree. Maybe not the most dignified thing to do. I don't know if us as adults would 
try to climb a tree just to see somebody. You know, we would have to be careful that we don't fall down. We can say that the rich young ruler also sought out Jesus. After all, he came to Jesus to ask him what he must do to inherit eternal life. But Zacchaeus is going to do something that the rich young ruler didn't do. Jesus comes to the tree. He looks up, says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus came down and was glad to welcome Jesus into his home. Nothing escapes Jesus. He knows what's going on all the time. He knew what was in Zacchaeus' heart even before he saw him on that tree. He, and he wants to stay at his house. He knows where his heart is at. He wants that meeting face to face. And, you know, God is reciprocating those things for us too. If we really want in our heart of hearts to have that intimate contact, that intimate knowledge of God, don't you think that God is going to make that happen? After all, that's what he's working for. That's what he wants to do. That's what he has made his goal to seek and save the lost. So before even Zacchaeus had this thought about getting up on that tree to see Jesus, Jesus already knew whose house he was going to be because he recognized that Zacchaeus was seeking him out. So here's, there's a lesson in here for us. When we seek out Christ, when we want to really have a close encounter and continue it, Jesus is, all, is ready to take it up a notch and make it even more personal than you can imagine. Zacchaeus here, we see he's excited by the prospect of meeting with Jesus. He was honored. He was overjoyed. Jesus sought me out. Here, here was I trying to seek him out, and he's already seeking me out. He's reciprocating that same interest. Of course, you're always going to have the haters. Haters going to hate. People saw this, begin to express disapproval. They said, ah, he went to be the guest of a sinner. People's point of view are always going to be lacking some way. That's why you have to be careful what other people around you are saying. Human advice, human viewpoints are always lacking. They're never complete. So ungodly people's views and ideas are even more short-sighted. Short never believe the crowd. Don't be part of that herd mentality. Because if anything, we can say that the herd is always wrong, especially when it comes to things about eternal life. Popular opinion, where does it lead to? Jesus says, the road that leads to death is wide, and many people enter through it. That's popular opinion. That's the herd mentality. But the truth of God's kingdom, which is a narrow gate, a narrow road, few will find it. It's no surprise that there are few people that are going to be saved. Jesus always said that. And that's why we need to be smart and be like Zacchaeus. Have that heart. Be like Bartimaeus. What are we making? Who are we making the apple of our eye? Here are two distinct cases. One a beggar, poor, blind. Yet another one rich. Yet both had that same heart to make Christ the apple of their eye. So here's where Zacchaeus deviates from the rich young ruler. Later at dinner, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, I'll give half of my property to the poor. I'll pay four times as much as I owe to those I have cheated in any way. Zacchaeus knew he had found salvation. He knew that all these things that he treasured before really meant nothing when it comes to eternal life, when it comes to the kingdom 
of God. And not only did he say it, but he demonstrated his faith. Faith is always demonstrable. There's always something you can show about it. How did he show it? By showing how unattached he was to his riches. He put his money where his mouth is. He gave up half of his property. Was it too much? Was it too little? I don't know. How would we judge Zacchaeus? Could we say, well, Zacchaeus, I think you can afford to give a little more. <laughs> or maybe he gave too much. I don't know. That's really up to each person what they have decided in their heart to do. If he had a million dollars and he gave half, that meant he had $500 left. Maybe he was still rich. But hey, he did it for the Lord. Who are we to judge? Jesus says to Zacchaeus, you and your family have been saved today. You've shown, and here's the key word, shown. You've shown that you too are one of Abraham's descendants. So we see how important it is for the head of a household to put his money where his mouth is. Because it not only affects himself, but it's going to affect his whole family. He set a precedent for his entire family in the faith that he showed in Jesus, in who he made the apple of his eye. He proved his faith to be genuine. And so we can learn five things about the faith of Zacchaeus, five aspects of having a faith that saves. Seeking Jesus. What are you seeking? We know Jesus said in Matthew 5.33, seek the kingdom first and his righteousness. So this is all about that. Zacchaeus wanted to seek the kingdom first. And he knew that the kingdom started out with Jesus. He believed he was the Messiah. And not only does he seek Jesus, but it's more than that. He's not just satisfied with taking a look at him or hearing him. He wants to get to know Jesus. He wants to know him front and center. That burning desire that he had in his heart was matched and elevated by a Savior who loves us and who wants to match that passion with the passion we have inside. He's not going to leave us hanging ever. He's always going to take it up a notch. And so Zacchaeus is filled with joy by welcoming Jesus' words. He has a very welcoming heart of whatever Jesus is going to say. He also, a faith that saves also, is unattached to the material things. Now, we can't serve two masters, we heard Jesus say, because we'll love one more and, and give it up instead of the other. But here, Zacchaeus shows where his faith is at. It's not in the material things. And last but not least, he repents. He says, you know what? If I've cheated anyone, tax collectors were known to be cheaters back in the day. He promises to pay up to four times as much. That shows his, the willingness of how far he wants to go to correct any moral failures because he believes that he's found the kingdom of God. Just like in that parable uh, where Jesus taught us that the kingdom of God is like a man searching for buried treasure. And once he finds the field, what does he do? He sells everything he has and buys that field. And here is an example of that parable in Zacchaeus. And so Jesus reiterates his mission here at the end of this passage. The son of man has come to seek and save people who are lost. That's what Jesus came to do. Aren't you glad Jesus first came to seek you? Think about your story. How did your interest in Christ start it out? 
Many of you young people, it started out in your homes. You've been very blessed that the Messiah, that everything about him and the kingdom was taught to you at a young age. So you grew up knowing who should be the apple of your eye. But the time is going to come in your life where that's going to be tested to see whether that is real for you or not. Many of us who've come to Christ later on, how did it start out for us? How, when did we realize that the world really had nothing to give us? And that there was a man called Jesus Christ out there that we said, you know what? There has to be an answer in him. Even though you might have been an atheist like I was, that would be the last place I would look. But you know what? When you're honest about the truth, deep down in your heart, even if you say nothing to anybody, God knows. And it's Jesus' mission to seek you out and to save you if that's what you really want. He will not disappoint. This is a passage that also expresses that in Acts 17, 26, and 27. This is the Apostle Paul speaking these words. He says, from one man he has made every nation of humanity to live all over the earth. And he gave them the seasons of the year and the boundaries within which to live. So we know that God is responsible for assigning us, like it says here, the seasons, the times, and also the boundaries and the places. So times and places. God's the one who moves in every person's life and gives them the times and the places where they're at. And he does this, verse 27, for this reason. He has done this so that they would look for God, somehow reach for him and find him. He is never far from any one of us. So this is kind of like the other point of view. Jesus says, I've come to seek and save the lost. But there also is something on the other end of that. There has to be a person at the other end of that, realizing within the times and the limits that God has given us. No, there has to be a God. There has to be someone else. There has to be some truth to this. What is the truth? And God will not disappoint. He has promised to seek you out. Let's wrap it up now with this parable that Jesus teaches right after he leaves Jericho. Jesus was getting closer to Jerusalem. And the people thought that the kingdom of God would appear suddenly. While Jesus had the people's attention, he used this illustration. This is what we call the parable of the minas. Some versions would say. Some call it the parable of the ten coins. And let's focus on the context of this parable. In order to understand it well, we have to see why Jesus is telling or using this illustration. He says, or the people thought, that they were going to see God's kingdom appear at once. They had a misunderstanding about the kind of kingdom Jesus was going to bring. And so the main context of the parable of the ten minas is to correct that erroneous viewpoint that the kingdom was going to come right then and there. Jesus tells them this parable to let them know that there are certain things that need to happen, that need to occur before the kingdom of God would come. And those servants the ones in the kingdom of God had to prove themselves trustworthy of his kingdom by how they were going to use the gift that the king would give them. So he starts out by saying a prince 
went to a distant country to be appointed king. And then he returned. Before he left, he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 coins. He said to his servants, invest this money until I come back. So here's the scope of the timeline in this parable. It says he's going to go to a distant country. In other words, Jesus is going to heaven. He's going to be appointed king. And then he's going to come back. So this parable is about what happens during the church age. As I explained last week, there is a church age. That's the age in which we're now. That's the age that's taking place between the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the coming back of Christ. And that's where we are right now in the scope of things. And usually when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like, he's talking about the church age. He's talking about this time where we're in now. Now, of course, when he's telling these parables, that time hadn't happened yet. The kingdom hadn't happened. He hadn't yet been appointed king. He hadn't died. He hadn't been risen from the dead. So he's telling them this parable, and the people are not understanding what it's about. But we have a greater perspective on this, being on the other side of the cross. And, also, of course, having the Holy Spirit to help us understand some of these things. So the coming back means that Jesus is returning and judgment occurs. That's the end of the age. That's the end of all things, right? Before he leaves, though, notice, before he leaves... He's going to give unique provisions to his servants. And the number 10 keeps popping up, 10 servants, 10 coins. And in biblical numerology, 10 means a complete set or completion, as in the 10 commandments. The coins here in some of the parables, they're called minas, represent a provision that God gives equally to all kingdom servants. Unlike other parables, like the parable of the talents, where each one receives according to their faith and they're each given a different number of talents, this one represents a provision that only God can give, which is equal amongst all the workers in his kingdom. Minas, what can they represent? What could these coins represent that one of us only gets one or we, or we get them all equally? Some have suggested, well, it could be our life. This body, everybody, you know, gets a body. Granted, some of our bodies work better than others and are different, but we all get a body. If you don't have a body, you don't live in this, in this reality. Or maybe it could mean uh, life in general. You know, we each get a life here, and we need to do something with it. I believe, though, that the provision is a whole lot more special than that. If you like this podcast, please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. This ensures I will continue producing authentic Christian content as the Lord allows me. Thank you and have a blessed day. I believe that the provision, the special provision that only the king gives and he's giving this to the servants in his kingdom. He's not giving it to the whole world. We're not talking about something that is given to the whole world. We're talking about something that is given to the kingdom people, to his workers. And I believe that that provision is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always spoken of as a gift to be given. And doesn't the church era begin 
with the very giving of that special provision for all kingdom citizens, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Poured out, even on the Gentiles, the heavenly gift, always referred to as a gift. And this gift that is given to us comes with some expectations. The king says, well, you know, what are you going to do with it? I'm going to give this gift to you to invest. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to seek an account, see what you did with this gift. We continue on with the parable. The citizens of his own country hated him. They sent representatives to follow him and say to the person who was going to appoint him, we don't want this man to be our king. But he was appointed king anyway. <laughs> and he came back. So it's like, yeah, whatever you, whatever you thought doesn't matter. He's going to be king anyway. Then he said, call those servants to whom I gave money. I want to know how much each one has made by investing. So now he's calling them to account. There are always going to be some people, like he says here in the parable, who are lazy or suspicious or irresponsible. They'd rather not work. They don't want this guy to be king. I don't want him to be my king. I want to be my king. Or I want someone else to be their king. Guess what? Jesus is king anyway. It doesn't really matter what you think or do. He is king. So it's important for us to recognize, like Bartimaeus, like Zacchaeus, who is this Messiah? Because if we recognize that, that means the difference between life and death, as it does for the people in this parable as well. Who is the apple of your eye? People have no say in Jesus' kingship. He is king. No one rules God. No one can oppose his will. No, can, no one can oppose Jesus' will. Jesus is coming back. There will be accountability. There will be judgment. And we have to realize now as people in the kingdom that Jesus is going to demand an account. What have you done with the gift? What have you done with the Holy Spirit? Did you allow him to bear fruit in you? Did you use God's provisions to praise him, to help out others, to bring others to the truth? Right? Those are the kinds of questions I imagine will be asked. The first servant says, sir, the coin you gave me has earned 10 times as much. The king said to him, good job. You're a good servant. You proved that you could be trusted with a little money. Take charge of 10 cities. Now, I'm always amazed by the words that Jesus uses in these parables because to me, they reveal a whole lot of truth. So that gift, that amazing gift that Jesus gives us, he says, this was a little bit. I gave you a little. <laughs> it's like, okay, wow. He considered that a little. And then he says, now... Take charge of 10 cities. I don't know what that means. Are we going to have cities in the life to come? Are we going to like reign over them? I don't know what that really means. But it means, wow. It means that if I've shown to be trustworthy with something God considers a little here in this church life, there's going to be a whole lot more for me in the coming life. Holy, holy. I don't know what that means. But that's pretty cool. The second servant said, the coin you gave me, sir, has made five times as much. Okay, maybe not 10, but five. Hey, he's still called a good servant, not in this version. 
But he says, take charge of five cities. Maybe we could insert another example of another guy. Probably would be somebody like me. Hey, you know, you gave me one coin. I made one other one. Only one. Is that good? Yeah, you go take charge of one city. I'll be happy with that. <laughs> but then comes someone else. Here's a picture of Judgment Day. We're each going to get our personal interview with Christ as to how did things go while we were here? Were we self-serving? Were we trapped in our guilt, in our fear, in our pity parties? Did we go along with the world and with the mentality of the herd there? Jesus is going to say that trust is proven by what you do with, with what you have, not with what you don't have. If you're trustworthy with a little bit, there will be much you will be given in the afterlife. You're a good servant. You did what you could. You did what your faith allowed you to do. But if you complain or blame others or get lost in that game that the world plays, then was Jesus really the apple of your eye? Was your trust in God or was it placed somewhere else? It's all about trust, trustworthiness. It's all about who is the apple of your eye. See, there's one servant here that had this different attitude. He said, sir, look, here's your coin. He rejects the gift because, you know, even though he took it and he judges the king here, doesn't treat him right, treats it more like an object, like something that was lent. And he kind of puts it aside. That was not the intent of the gift. The gift was given for what? So that you could invest it and make more. Not so that you could hide it somewhere. So maybe there is a level of respect. After all, he does say, sir, hey, here's your coin back. But is there any love? Case in point, the Pharisees. Right? Reminds me of them. There was a, a certain superficial level of respect, but was there any zeal and investment? Was there any use of the good things that God had given them? So here's what kept this person from reaching their own potential, the potential God had given them. It was their own presumption about God. They judged him. And I find that in today's world. In my generation, there are always people who judged God. They didn't know who he was, but they judged him anyway. Hey, I myself, I did that too. My fear. Notice how it says, I was afraid of you, he says. Fear is a main factor here. When I look back, I might not have been able to articulate it at the time, but I was fearful. And my fear was the main cause of my agnosticism at the time. I look back, maybe I resented that I wasn't able to get to know God. I resented that I couldn't control God, manipulate him in some way. Make him see that I felt wrong about many things. Make him, force him to see my point of view. And so in my anger, I presume God was harsh and uncaring. You don't care. You're, you take what you don't give. But I thank God nowadays that he was relentlessly merciful to me. 
I understand where you're coming from. What about you? Any of you judging God as uncaring? Any of you thinking that God is tough, angry at you? That he takes what isn't yours or harvest grain where he hasn't planted? That God is exacting something from you, demanding something from you that he never gave you? Is that how you look at him? Because see, the king is going to say, hey, I'll, I'll judge you by what you say. So I'd rather think that God is merciful and kind and all the things that I know that he is from the word of God. I've been convinced by the word of God to know that God is graceful and merciful and kind. And not only that, I've experienced it in my life too. And I'm thankful for that because at one point I did judge God. And I cursed Jesus. Thank God I didn't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Because God would have judged me by that standard then. The standard that I use is the standard that will be used against me. Whatever standard I use to judge, that's the standard that will be used against me. I judge God harshly, and he's going to be, okay, I'm going to show you what harsh is. You want to know what harsh is? Okay, fine. I'll show you what, what harsh is. I'll judge you by what you said, you evil servant. You knew I was a tough person to get along with. You knew that I take what is in mine and harvest grain when I haven't planted. Then why didn't you put my money in the bank? Then when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. If you really knew that I was so harsh, then why didn't you put my money to work somehow <laughs> instead of just hiding it away? He says, you're just evil. In some versions, it would say lazy to it. That's that classifier there as well. Jesus calls out this man's ignorance. This guy could at least invested the little he thought he had in some kind of work for the kingdom. Then the king told his men, take his coin away, give it to the man who has 10. They replied, sir, he already has 10 coins. I can guarantee that everyone who has something will be given more, but everything will be taken away from those who don't have much. Bring my enemies who didn't want me to be their king. Kill them in front of me. You want to see how harsh I am? You want to see how tough I am? This is, this, this is it. Is this what you want? In the next age, those who didn't want to be subjects to Jesus will lose their life. You wanted it tough? There it is. You who wouldn't see Jesus' grace and kindness, who didn't take advantage of his glorious and generous gift, you will lose everything. And then some. You will lose your very life, as Revelation 14, 10 through 11 says, they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Just like he said in the parable, kill them in front of me. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image. For those who didn't make Jesus the apple of their eye. You look at pictures of people who were kids. You know, I look at somebody else's kids that I remember, oh, this kid, you know, I remember this kid. He was three years old. Now I see him, he's 20-something. It's like, holy moly, I must look like an ancient if this kid looks like that. 
I see pictures of my classmates from 1985. They're like, wow, these guys look old. And they say, well, you haven't looked at yourself in the mirror, have you? I think I'm still in 1985. No. <laughs> we are, you know, we're, we're getting there. Time flies. It's past. Who can help you? There's no doctor, no institution, no place you can go to say, hey, can you extend my time here a little bit? You know, hey, can you make it better? Can you make my life better a little bit here? Some people think that can happen. But really, there's only one that can help us from this plight. Will you seek Jesus for the regeneration that he can give you? Will you, like Zacchaeus, understand that even though you have material things, that the world does not, does not give you any answers? You have eyes and you can see that there is no apple to behold in this physical world. There's only Jesus. Will you be like Zacchaeus? Will you be like Bartimaeus and recognize that there's only one son of David who can help you see? If there's something in your life that is physically limiting, like in the life of Bartimaeus, will you recognize that the son of David is the one, the only one, that can help you. Jesus didn't come to extend your bios, your physical life, but your zoe, your vitality, your energy, your zest for life. Only Jesus could do that. Only Jesus can regenerate. And he does so by first establishing that gospel that we may believe he is the Messiah and then giving us that gift, the Spirit. Are you seeking Jesus now while the time is available so that you can be ready for his return? After services are over, you can join me and some of the brothers for prayer. Let's pray together. What is it that's troubling you? What is it that's getting in the way of you being able to fully realize this gift that God has given you? Or maybe you just need to come clean. Maybe you just need to start fresh like Zacchaeus. Let's do that today. And if you want to get baptized today, then also see one of us so that we can arrange for you to make that first step of obedience by faith into God's kingdom. Have a great afternoon.